Hello, and welcome to Faith Outside the Box, where we share faith journeys that take us in unexpected directions. I'm your host, Jan Engmeyer. As pastor of the First United Methodist Church at the Chicago Temple, Phil Blackwell was a familiar presence on our television programming. He grew up in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin, and was an English major at the University of Wisconsin and attended Yale Divinity School. He then served 45 years as a United Methodist pastor throughout Northern Illinois. He's now retired, and he and his wife Sally live in St. Louis near their two children and four grandchildren. Welcome, Reverend Blackwell. It's nice to have you with us. Share some of your earliest memories from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. It was a very uh, unexciting childhood in terms of being, you know, sort of white middle class, small town. Here we go. Uh, got to the University of Wisconsin, which the world got much bigger. And then one summer, you know, after my junior year in college, there was a, a group in my then church in Libertyville, made up of college students who, in many ways, tough loved me back into reality. And that got me thinking about ministry. I'd been thinking about being a doctor. Then I took a qualitative analysis and discovered that was there's something more to it than just bedside manner. And uh, so I, I ended up going to Yale Divinity School. And uh, that broadened my world a great deal. I met Sally there and we uh, got married and then went to Wolverhampton, England for a year to uh, a Methodist church. And uh, that's the first time that I ever did a wedding, a funeral, or, and a baptism all in the same weekend. My very first week, yeah, well, I couldn't tell them I've never done it before. But Sally and I stayed up most of the night on Saturday where she kept handing me the pillow so I could cradle the baby. And all along, I was thinking, he says, which way is the baby goes, the zipper up or zipper down? So it, it was great to open on the road get back to Yale, graduate in 1970, and then begin my work in the Northern Illinois Conference in Apple River, Illinois. Dairy farming community, 431 people out near Galena. And um, first thing I learned was that on the first day I was there, I put my Yale Divinity School diploma up on the wall behind the uh, desk in the pastor's study. And while I was putting books on there that first morning, somebody came up the stairs, I heard, and was saying, uh, uh, hello, preacher, just want to welcome you to town. I said, well, thank you very much. And he looked at the Yale diploma. He said, what's that? I said, oh, that's, that's just a diploma from Yale. He says, oh, don't they make locks and keys too? <laughs> so it came down, went into the drawer. You know, you, you learn in a hurry in a dairy farming community. Well, one Memorial Day, I was asked to give the prayer at the flagpole in town. And there were about 50 people there. And the uh, main speaker was a congressional representative from, the, from Wisconsin who was really very conservative. So he speaks, and then it's my turn to give the prayer. Well, in good spirit of what I learned from Bill Coffin in seminary, 
Uh, I prayed for the families of the town and those who were in the military and all during the Vietnam War. And then I began to pray for the other side, the families of the kids who were in the Viet Cong uh, situation. And uh, I finished the prayer and I, I looked around and everybody was staring at me with disbelief and hatred. I thought, okay, I think I maybe overstepped the bounds. I go back to the uh, parsonage and the 11 o'clock, there's the uh, 21 gun salute. And even before the third volley uh, faded, our phone rang. And it was Ed Gerber, the chair of our church staff. And he just said, Phil, I just heard the, uh, uh, the guy. Oh, it's just so good to hear your voice. <laughs> Did they think they were aiming at you? <laughs> well, he, I, then he laughed. Then I laughed. And that was kind of the, uh, you know, a welcoming way of including me, even though I'd excluded myself with a, with a prayer. They, um, one of the things I learned there was that cows don't stay milked uh, every day, morning and evening, seven days a week. So Sunday morning, members of the church would get up very early, go out to the barn, milk their cows, get cleaned up, have breakfast, come to church at 11 o'clock and fall asleep nice warm church and and they felt very comfortable and and welcome there that was the that was the takeaway is that they were so comfortable being members of the church that it was okay for them to sleep and i learned that uh it wasn't always my judgment that mattered they were part of the community one of the things i learned in apple river because i got involved in a lot of family discussions out in the farm and other places was that uh, occasionally I would sit in the living room with the husband and wife while they were talking about whether to have an abortion or not. Oh my. Um, they um, either the the child was not developing well and there were some real problems with that or the mother <clears throat> was having health problems and she needed to consider that. Now, of the four or five families where I was privileged to listen, uh, they all made different decisions about it. But what it did uh, impress me was that uh, abortion is a deeply personal and emotional decision, and to treat it as being political is uh, inhuman. So we moved from Apple River to Rockford, a town of uh, blue collar middle class industrial city back during the 1970s when there was a, a big uh, depression of sorts, recession of the economy. So we worked pretty hard to try and get food out to people and do things that were uh, very close to the, to the ground. I discovered that it was a Scandinavian city where a Swedish person marrying a Norwegian person was considered a mixed, mixed marriage. marriage. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. yeah. So are you are you an O-N or an E-N? <laughs> you know? And I had uh, a weekly TV show there of my own design uh, of no great worth other than uh, I call it the eighth day, you know, what happens after the seventh day. 
And again, what I learned, and this was not part of my agenda, but what I learned were there were a lot of uh, gay and lesbian people who were very happy to include me, talk to me. And uh, I realized that that gender identity is not a choice, but it's a given. And so to make that political, whether it's in the church or in public life, simply is to use people as weapons. So that was kind of a, you know, learning time in those early days, in those faraway appointments. Go way back, the way back machine, and tell us about your church growing up. Um, did you ever think that you would could imagine yourself being a minister? Uh, no, no. I'm, it was in a um, Methodist church in Danville and then in a EUB church, I was called United Brethren Church in um, Menominee Falls because there was no Methodist church there. So I was baptized Methodist and confirmed EUB, greatly relieved when the two joined together to be the single church. Uh, but no, I didn't I didn't think of that. All I know is that in Danville, Dad was in the church choir and I would sit in the pew and color in all of the P's and O's in the bulletin with pencil ball things going on. So it was a welcoming uh, place to grow up in grade school and high school, but it was not at all clear that there was a calling in this direction, which really, as I said, was not clear to me until my junior year in college, where I had to make some sort of decision. Tell us about your time at Yale. How did that shape your faith? Uh, well, it was a uh, a time, again, of, of broadening because we, we had about 50 different denominations represented in the student body, plus uh, people from other religious traditions. And I didn't, you know, I didn't know even, I've never met, met a Schwenkfelder before, but there, there he was. And a bunch of other people who, again, broadened my, my base of understanding. Plus I was reading things and uh, in discussions that were way over my head, even from the first day. I don't know if I got taller or if I brought the discussion down, but I began to understand some things. Sally and I met in New Haven, as I said, and went off to Wolverhampton then came back. So uh, my call to ministry was confirmed when I went to seminary, but it was not before that. So you have seen an awful lot of changes in the Methodist church over 45 years in ministry. Uh, what were some of the major ones that you had have experienced firsthand? Well, it, it broadened its base in 1968 when it joined with the Evangelical United Brethren Church. And then I think it was 1972 that the um, Black Conference, which was nationwide, got uh, brought into the United Methodist system. And... Then it became clear that there were some divisions, north and south, and uh, some divisions around gender issues and theology issues and all. In the Northern Illinois Conference, it was a pretty clear commitment toward moving forward and being inclusive. 
Um, but I could see more and more that there was something that I ended up having more in common with the Presbyterians and the UCCs than some of the Methodists uh, in our conference and beyond. I think that uh, part of it is a reaction against the kind of organizational pattern that United Methodists have where there are actually people in charge of things like the bishop and the district superintendents. And it, it's not a uh, freelance organization. And then partly because it's both national and international, when you get around to certain issues, uh, it's hard to have a common storyline when you're dealing with people all around the world who have very different experiences as they're growing up. So as the United Methodist Church fractures right now, it's uh, not surprising that uh, in Wesleyan terms, uh, the Methodists were fractured off from the Church of England. Well, we, we're, we're having a, a redefinition of subsets in the Methodist, Methodist Church right now. Well, and it remains to be seen, like the rest of the story, um, after the big general conference later this year, if it all comes off as scheduled. It's been postponed several times. And uh, that's the good part about being retired, right? <laughs> so after your time in Rockford, where was the next stop? Well, I was appointed to be the United Methodist Campus Minister at the University of Chicago. Fascinating neighborhood in Chicago with the Columbian Exposition in 1893. And the house where we lived, the story was that Frank Lloyd Wright lived there one summer and knocked down the wall, separating the living room from the parlor to have bigger space. We don't know that for sure, but it was a story I kept telling. Uh, and my work was primarily with graduate students, mainly one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, University of Chicago is quite a strange place. Uh, Somebody had said that it's a Baptist school where atheists teach Jews about Thomas Aquinas. And so there were a lot of students doing things, taking things that I didn't, I didn't even know what department they were in. At the same time, my wife Sally was teaching French to graduate students who had to pass an exam. And we would have Sunday night dinners at our house, which the students seemed to like because it got them off campus and into a house with little kids and a cat. And Sally would make something most likely spaghetti. And then the students were to bring something to put on the tables, table. And I, I said to them one time, I said, you know, I didn't know that Tupperware made containers so small. Was, their contributions were uh, well-meaning. Uh, for three years, I was on the staff at Rockefeller Chapel. And uh, that proved to be interesting because the, I only preached there a few times, but you know, you climb up the stairs to the pulpit in Rockefeller Chapel, to what one of my British friends would say was 10 feet above contradiction. And then I look out and I see my footnote sitting in front of me. You know, Langdon Gilkey and Joe Sittler and David Tracy. And uh, that, that was kind of um, sobering to, to take a look. Then I moved from that sub uh, job, since I was still the main 
uh, campus minister for the Methodists, uh, to take a doctor of ministry project at the Divinity School. Uh, the comical is a theological concept, which didn't go over very big, but they got rid of me anyway with, with a degree. And uh, it was such a small world. I mean, here's a big university with these brilliant people, uh, some of them with Nobel Prizes. Uh, but one time I walked out of the house, it was the day after uh, Ronald Reagan was elected. And here was my neighbor, David Bevington, who was a great Shakespeare professor, standing in the street, not moving. And I walked over to him and I said, David, are you okay? He says, how did he win? I don't know anyone who voted for him. Well, welcome to the uh, smallness of a uh, Hyde Park campus. I was walking home one day and stopped at the street light to have a change to cross the street. And here comes Jim Gustafson, who was a... Um, very good ethicist who I had as a teacher at Yale Divinity School. Now he's at the University of Chicago. And he recognized me. He said, well, how was your first year in campus ministry? I said, well, sir, it's going well, but it's actually my fifth year. <laughs> he said, no, they're only first years. <laughs> Which talks about the nature of being a chaplain somewhere, whether it's the hospital or the military, something that you stay put, but everybody else keeps moving. So we were there six years, and then I was appointed to Wilmette for a northern suburb of Chicago for 13 years. And um, I was intimidated by the setting after all the places we'd been, the beautiful homes, the long Lake Michigan, the nice parks, the good shops. And... Um, it was mainly lawyers and bankers and politicians and decision makers. I made a mistake at the first trustees meeting that I think I spent five years trying to undo. Because I said, I feel like I've been dropped behind enemy lines. Oh, oh dear. And, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, yes. But uh, what I learned was that the people there in the church were actually very well intended, who wanted to help everybody with food and housing and safety and acceptance. They just didn't have the connections to do it. They live very narrow lives in places like that too, where you get on the commuter train at seven in the morning, you go to the loop, you do your 10 hours of work, you get back on the train in time for supper before bedtime. And so the church was there to make connections for the people to apply their faith, let's say, to the common good. So I I became greatly appreciative of the area. Actually, uh, our church was the, one of the locations for the filming of Home Alone. And, uh, you know, it's our church in the background behind the crash. And uh, Chris Columbus, the director, the night before they were doing the filming, I walked over to the church and he said, uh, Pastor, we need more snow. This doesn't look good. So I said, well, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> that night, we had five inches of beautiful snow, and I hurried over to the church in the morning, and Chris Columbus said to me, that's way too much. we got to brush some of it off. 
<laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> yeah, I said, hey, you know, if you'd been more specific, I could have done better. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was that kind of upscale town in a way. And we were able to start some programs for the community that moved beyond the congregation. So we had Sundays at four o'clock, you know, Gwendolyn Brooks, the poet laureate of, of Illinois, and Madeline Lingle, the author, University of Chicago professors, Wendy Donegan and um, Doniger, and Langdon Gilkey and Martin Marty. We had Phil Jackson, the coach of the Bulls, William Warfield singing, Oscar Brown Jr. and his family as our wow. in-house music musicians for a while. And then we had the National Choir of Kenya. The number of Kenyans living in Wilmette is very small, but they had to move through our area over the 4th of July. So we said, well, we can come up with housing overnight, and if you can do a concert in the church. Well, that 4th of July was the biggest crowd we've ever had. People seated in the uh, center aisles and on the floor and out in the garden with the windows open. And I said to them, you know, that there are two miracles today. One is that so many people are able to show up. And the other miracle is that none of you are the fire commissioner. <laughs> and it was, it was one of the highlights of my 13 years in Wilmette was to host the uh, Kenyan National Choir who apparently uh, over the years also remembered it well and talked about Will Met. How wonderful. Yeah. Then after that, uh, Joe Sprague, the bishop, uh, harnessed me to be on the conference staff. Um, I've been there 13 years. I didn't have much more to say. And I think that he was looking forward to appointing a woman to that pulpit, which he did. So I was on the staff with Joe, and he was a fearless advocate within the denomination of uh, offering um, conflict that the Judicial Council of the denomination had to, had to try and resist him. And uh, so one time we had the Judicial Council as our guest at dinner. We had a dinner in Evanston. There's this long table with the Ju Judicial Council members on one side and the Northern Illinois Conference staff on the other. We're going around the table introducing ourselves, and I, I just said, uh, I'm here tonight as uh, Bishop Sprague's taster, <laughs> which half of the table thought was really funny. And the other half? <laughs> the other half. Well, there you go. Uh, but it allowed me to get out of the, uh, again, out into the world in places I would not have expected and to... Uh, city neighborhoods that I didn't know existed, in the congregations with languages I did not understand, uh, ecumenical and interfaith connections, lunch with Bosnian widows, a gathering of Native American United Methodists out west, and a trip to Chiapas to visit the Zapatistas. So again, the world gets bigger. Uh, but then after that, I ended up the Chicago Temple. Well, in your 13 years at the temple, what were some of your biggest personal and structural challenges? It's an, it's well, an interesting church. Well, it is. Um, the church was there you know, even before Chicago was founded. So it has a kind of 
centricity to its location and its history. And the uh, parsonage is in the steeple of the church, 23, 24, and 25 floors above the Daly Plaza. So you'd look down on the city all day, and there was a Picasso in your front yard and a Moreau in your side yard. And the world, again, got bigger. There, One, one thing I noticed, because we lived in the church, uh, in the city, was that there were three shifts of people in the city. There, there was the first shift that was the workers who came in, maybe from Wilmette and other places, and they came into their offices and did their work. When they left, a second shift came in about five o'clock to clean the offices, many of them doing their second job of the day to come and do the cleaning. And then the third shift were the people who slept in the doorways because they had nowhere else to go. And we had a, a lunch program at the Chicago Temple during the weekday. And um, this was early in my ministry there. And I, I went down and I stood at the table where we had, you know, hi, my name is, name tags, and told people to put their first name on it and put it on their clothing. And one of the people going through, young man, I... I started apologizing to him and I said, you know, I'm really sorry. I know you have to eat more than one meal today and certainly during the week. And, but this is all we have. And he said to me, shut up. Don't you get it that this is the only time during the week that I am called by my name rather than being called names? Oh, wow. Yeah, I got it. But that was part of the training, you know, to be, involved in a world that that otherwise you're not in you're not called into so at the temple we we you know, we were open 7 days a week for 12 hours a day what we had to offer the city was location space and time mm. you know, located right on daily plaza space big and small for gatherings and we could open up at any time. So we, we hosted humanities festival events and political organizing groups, the Teachers Union, the Independent Voters of Illinois. We also started a theater in the basement, the Silk Road Theater Project, as it was first named by Jamil Corey and Malik Giuliani. And they produced new plays about life along the historic Silk Road, Middle East to India to Asia. And life in the U.S. for the same people from the Silk Road who, who were living here. And after one of the early plays, I was sort of cleaning up the uh, performance area. And there was still a young woman sitting in her chair, the only person left. And she was crying. And I very pastorally went over and said, is there anything I can do to help you? And she said, I just have never seen myself portrayed on the stage before. Hmm. Well, and that theater company was formed right after um, the attacks on the World Trade Towers. Right? Yes, yeah, and and partly in response to that, you know, how do we how do we learn from one another, <clears throat> and how do we learn the humanity of one another? So I, I saw at the temple, among all sorts of things, that the location, space, time, and the Christian 
intention to build a community on the part of the members uh, was what we had to offer. I retired from there in 2014. We moved to our lake cottage in Wisconsin. For 15 months, I was an interim minister at First United Methodist Church, Madison. And then, as you said, Jan, we moved to St. Louis to be near our two kids and their families. And um, they remained here because they had graduated from Washington University. <clears throat> and we're trying to get accustomed to living in the South. I always figured the South began at Highway 80. <laughs> Careful now. Yeah, right. I know, I know, I know. I know. <laughs> there you go, right? Yeah. But you've also done a lot of work with um, uh, clergy and, and students um, yeah. in, in a project at the, through the University of Chicago, correct? Yeah, the, uh, the university with... Um, Cynthia Lindner uh, on the faculty developed a, a part of a program that's actually national, uh, sponsored by the Lilly Foundation. But what it was, was we got 12 clergy of a variety of sorts from Chicago, all within their first couple of years of ministry. I mean, they were out of seminary, they were in practice, but we were able to get them together four times a year for three days at a time to deal with what does it mean to be a public theologian. Now, they actually all were like that because that's how they got chosen by us. But what we discovered was that to give them three days around their church assignments <clears throat> where they could let go of all of that. Uh, formality, go out and eat at restaurants in Chicago they couldn't afford to go to otherwise, uh, and then meet some people who my job was to get Martin Marty and Robin Lovin and Bill Schweiker and other people to come to be guests, that uh, it was a great gift for them because of the context, whether the Discussion was any good or not, that that was that varied from time to time. So we worked with uh, 36 young clergy by the time we were done. And that's where my world got bigger, too, partly because they represented several different traditions, uh, including a rabbi we were able to get in in the uh, third group. But to hear them about what is it that faces them now that they have left seminary and they're starting out somewhere in the Chicago area. Um, again, I, I spent a lot more time listening than talking because they spent a lot of time talking to each other and offering um, support for each other. Now that program, which again was replicated some other places in the country and sponsored by Lily, um, that ended, but Cynthia Lindner's working with the Martin Marty Foundation, Marty Marty Center at the University of Chicago to try and bring something like that back into place for, for another group. It's important to support young clergy, for sure. Yeah. What's your relationship with God like in your retirement? My relationship with God right now seems to be radically changing for two reasons. One is I had some 
medical problems last week that suggest that uh, being 80 does not necessarily mean you're going to make it to 90. But also because I met Christian Wyman, who's a poet who teaches right now at Yale Divinity School. Um, he used to be head of the Poetry Foundation in Chicago. And uh, I bought his book, Zero at the Bone, 50 Entries Against Despair. And what I find it is <clears throat> it's recalling for me all of my uh, English reading of poetry, being an English major, and I don't understand most of what he's quoting, but it's really redirecting my thinking and my feeling about, so what's important? What doesn't matter? How do we move? forward? How do we become inclusive of our children and grandchildren even more? How are we nice to our neighbors here? Uh, so in some ways, I don't want to say I'm becoming more spiritual, because that's not mine to say. But I'm becoming less public and more thoughtful. How that translates into ministry, I, that for other people, I don't know. Phil, thank you for letting us walk with you on your faith journey. To our listeners, be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, leave us a review, and most importantly, tell your friends. Go to gcbm.org for all the links. Faith Outside the Box is a production of the Greater Chicago Broadcast Ministries, a communications ministry of the Protestant, Orthodox, and Episcopal Churches of Greater Chicago in cooperation with the Council of Religious Leaders. I'm your host, Jan Engmeyer. May peace be with you. <laughs>